0: Welcome to the Grace Fellowship Church of a podcast. Our desire is to help you grow in your journey with Jesus, no matter where you are. For more information, please check out our website at www.gfchurch.net. This today is a passage that's very unusual, and I'll explain why in a minute, because this isn't one that a lot of pastors spend time on. And I'm a glutton for punishment, so I'm going to spend time on it today. Now, the year was 1969, and uh, there was a problem brewing in New York City. And there was a group that was at the heart of this problem. See, a lot of crime had started to set in in New York. Uh, On top of this, businesses, because of the crime problem, began to close their doors by 4 p.m. in New York City. Churches stopped holding services in the evening. Central Park, which I love Central Park. We took our kids there last year. Central Park was a place you did not want to be after dark. The group that was at the heart of this problem or causing a lot of mischief and businesses to close was a group known as the Black Panthers. Uh, At the time, J. Edgar Hoover who was the head of the FBI, called together church leaders, African-American leaders, to get them together to have a discussion about what can and what should we do about the Black Panthers. And so they got these men together in the FBI, and they were having a discussion. One of the men that was there was a man named E.V. Hill, a pastor. Uh, E.V. Hill's, if you ever get a chance to hear some of his sermons, he's with the Lord now, but very fiery, very passionate preacher. Love hearing him preach. Evie Hill, as a spiritual leader, was there, and and uh, he heard J. Edgar Hoover saying, "Businesses closing, people are moving out of New York City uh, because of how hard it has become because of the problems that this group has caused." And Evie Hill, just out of pure curiosity, said, "Can I ask you a question?" And J. Edgar said, "Yes." He said, "How many how many people are in this group that are causing this problem?" And J. Edgar Hoover looked down at the desk, looked at his paper, and he said. 81. E.B. Hill looked at him and said, 81 people are causing problems with 4 million people? 81 people are able to control a city of 4 million to get businesses to close and churches to not have services and people to move out of like a a, a city that many people dream of living in? 81? E.B. Hill was blown away. And when I heard him talk about this story, He had a point with it. He said, many people question the power of a small church. Many people question the power of the influence of a small group of believers who get together focused on doing what God has called them to do and think they can't do much. And he remembers this story that what the Black Panthers were able to do in New York back in 1969, don't ever question the size of a group of people committed all in for a cause and what change they may bring, or what they can do. Now, you may say, what on earth does this have to do with Nehemiah? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because Nehemiah chapter 3, which, as I said, is an unusual passage, because uh, how many of you get just absolute, your favorite passages in the Bible are the genealogies in Matthew chapter 1? Anyone? 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 Yeah, those are top passages of Scripture because it's like, and -and so-and-so begat so-and-so. And And -and so-and-so begat so-and-so. Nehemiah 3 is very similar because in Nehemiah 3, we're going to learn about the people who rallied up behind Nehemiah. Last week, we talked about the fact that Nehemiah uh, set a vision before the people of Jerusalem and said, we're going to rebuild the wall. And these people are like, let's get ready to go to work. Now we're going to learn a lot of the names. And I'm just going to put a disclaimer this morning. I have a seminary degree and I went to Bible college and I was raised in a home that taught the Bible. I am probably going to mispronounce some of these names even after I have read over them 20 times. So I'm just going to put it out there. If I can make a flaw, you can make a flaw. You have permission from this point on because these are complicated names. But I want to take a look at some of the story and some of the positions behind these people. Students in here... Take notes, write down. There's going to be seven different groups that we're going to go through that were a part of the whole group who helped build this wall. Now, I want to start with the very first verse in Nehemiah chapter 3. You can follow along on the screen. You can open up your Bible. Also, there's a QR code that will take you to a U version uh, of, uh, of the notes. And at it, uh, it chapter 1 of verse 3, or excuse me, verse uh, 1 of chapter 3, it says this. Then Eliashib... The high priest rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hananel. And then later on, if you skip down briefly, down to verse 17, another one I wanted to highlight with this is the Levites repaired. In verse 17a, the very beginning. It points out that the Levites helped to repair. Now, I have these two as spiritual leadership. Part of the people who did the work and the first ones listed was the spiritual leadership. They were the first ones there. And I know for us, we read the sheep gate. Okay, whoop-de-doo. What is that? The sheep gate is the gate that when sacrifices were brought to the temple, a very important part... Of their faith uh, this is where they would come through the first thing they started with these religious leaders who were no construction guys okay they start with the sheep gate one of the most important places leading to the temple so that sin could be atoned for through sacrifice they started with the spiritual in this project And this was important. Um, There's a map. Can you hop back up to the map? Just so you know, as this chapter goes on, I know this might be tiny for you, but this wall here, we're starting all the way up there with the sheep gate. As you go through this chapter, it goes all the way around, counterclockwise, all the way back around, and how it lists how things were constructed. The spiritual uh, leaders took this job upon themselves, and they consecrated. They set it apart for usage for God. They uh, declare the importance of this. But they made the spiritual first. It goes on. The second group that we're going to look at of workers after the spiritual workers, was the outsiders. Well, who on earth am I talking about the outsiders? Okay. Well, in verse 2, and we're also going to highlight verse 5, it says this. And next to him, or next to some of these priests and so on, the men of Jericho built. And next to them, Zachor, the son of Imri, built. And next to, and verse 5 says this, and next to them, the Tekoaites repaired. Tekoaites. Okay, so now we have uh, Jericho and Tacoa. Those two in particular are noted here. Jericho was not Jerusalem. Jericho is a couple miles away. Well, where's Takoa? Takoa is 12 miles south. And yet these people hear the vision that Nehemiah has put out. They get wind of it and they say, we're in. We want to be a part of this. And they come. To a town that is not their own. They could have said, well, hey, Tacoa needs its walls rebuilt. Uh, they could have said Jericho needs its walls rebuilt. There's a little joke in there with that. Uh, from the Old Testament earlier, Jaco. Okay, anyway, Jericho. Yeah, they could have said they, they need their walls rebuilt. And yet, and yet, they came behind a vision and rallied behind something, these outsiders, to help with the work. Now, in previous uh, months, I had mentioned uh, when we were serving in Connecticut, Um, One of the uh, ministry opportunities that we had as a church is we did it and took a part of something called Night to Shine, which is a uh, prom for people with special needs, and uh, we did it there, sort of a step of faith. We had several hundred show up at this. Uh, What was cool about this is we took the step of faith to do this as a church, and we didn't know how it was even going to turn out. And so we stepped into uh, setting everything up and getting this sort of prom set up, and A great time for anyone with special needs could be there, didn't matter age, anything. And so they came and we had, as I said, close to 100 that were there the first year. Now, we didn't do this so everyone in town would say, wow, you're good people. We did it to be faithful to people that often are overlooked. People that don't necessarily get to enjoy a prom. And so we did this and what was cool was the response though. The people outside of our church had in town, ones who didn't even follow the Lord. Uh, One of the gentlemen there, the the one who's guiding the girl in the wheelchair, uh, was a football player from one of the elite prep schools outside of Boston. Uh, He came with his buddy, whose dad was Joe Tessitore, who is one of the college football uh, announcers. He was Monday Night Football last year. He came. Was a part of it. We had Miss Connecticut there. She was really popular with the guys. Uh, we had all of these people who weren't necessarily a part of uh, our church, but they heard what we were doing. They're like, we want to be a part of that because, yeah, this is a good thing. It's amazing when a church does something well, and we're just being faithful to what God calls us health, that sometimes inspires people to be a part of it. And what an opportunity for us to set an example for them, but also have an avenue To share Christ, as we did with the night to shine. These outsiders came from miles away to take part of the work of what uh, the vision that Nehemiah had put out there. But that wasn't it. The third group that we see working listed is in verse 7, and it's the ruling class. The ruling class got involved. So it says here in verse 2, Next to him, or excuse me, uh, and next to them repaired uh, Melatiah, the Gibeonite, and Jadon, the Moronathite, the men of Gibeon and Amisba, the seat of the governor of the province beyond the river. Again, outside or beyond the river. This is a territory from beyond Jerusalem. A leader had a seat in Jerusalem, and he's sending people to work. Not only this, but it mentions, and this isn't the only place. You see several of the people that are helping build with this wall in other verses are political leaders, They're getting involved with it. Now, unfortunately, we know politicians here uh, in our day and age are really good at telling us what to do. Not necessarily getting involved in it themselves because, you know, they got to be protected or maybe it's beneath them. I don't know. But in this case, the ruling class are working alongside of outsiders. The ruling class are working along with the spiritual leaders to fulfill this vision. They were a part of it. Uh, there's something I want you to take out of this. And and kids in here, I want you to learn this at a young age. Um, Learn that if you want to be a leader, you need to be amongst your people. You need to be amongst them shoulder to shoulder. If you give them a project to do, it is not beneath you. Uh, One of the more... uh, Best examples I heard of this, John MacArthur, pastor out in California, some of you will know. Uh, John MacArthur uh, takes part with Master Seminary out there, and uh, at one phase in uh, the school's history, they had to set up chairs for chapel services, and John MacArthur is known around the world, an amazing, you know, pastor, speaker, writer, and after chapel would be done, John MacArthur would be helping tear chairs down it wasn't beneath him. That's a servant. He was mimicking what Jesus did when he washed the feet of his disciples. The ruling class, a good leader, if you want to be a good leader, you lead with your people. You don't just bark out commands. Anyone, anyone can bark out commands. Uh, Believe me, we hear it in our home, okay? Anyone can bark out commands. Anyone, this sounds, this sounds uh, crazy, but anyone can get a position and a title. But that doesn't make you a leader. Anyone can get a position and a title. I've seen people get a position and a title and they were not a leader at all. They didn't have the ability to influence and to guide. And they were not working amongst people. The ruling class in this case got involved. The fourth group uh, that we see in this chapter were the professionals. The professionals who worked. Verse 8 said this, next to them, Uzziel, the son of Hariah, goldsmiths repaired. Next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers, repaired. And they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. So now you see goldsmiths, guys who work with gold, make expensive things, make things for the temple, they're craftsmen at gold working. And you see perfumers, Estee Lauder of the day was there. Building walls, okay? Perfumers, they put aside the career and learned a new career, wall building. They got involved. They didn't care about what their profession was. They still got involved. They could say, well, I know nothing about it. I don't have any experience. Didn't matter. When there is a need, people need to jump in, even if they're not qualified. Even if they're not qualified. If I am at a swimming pool in summer and I see somebody drowning, I don't stand along the side of the pool and go, well, I'm not a lifeguard. And watch them drown. I jump in and I do whatever I can. It may not be the way that a lifeguard would save their life, but I'm gonna do my best. And so it is with us, even as a church, even as Christians, in our towns, in our neighborhoods. You see the need, you respond to it. Even if you're not qualified, perfumers and goldsmiths were a part of the construction Next group, number five, notable families were working in this group that is listed. Notable families. This one I'll explain to you. Verses 9 and 10 say this. Next to them, Rephiah, the son of Hur, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, notice another political leader, repaired. Next to them, Jediah, the son of, I always want to say Harumph with this guy's name for some reason. Uh, <laughs> uh, but Harumaf, uh, re- uh repaired opposite his house. It was right next door. And next to him, Hadesh the son of Hashabaniah, repaired. Now, you're like, okay, you said notable families were like, how'd you get that? When you do some research in your scripture and you find out, but the first one I have there, Rephia, was of the lineage of a guy named Saul, who was at one time a king in Israel. To make this even more interesting, you go down to the name Hadish down at the bottom. Hadish was the, I guess, sort of the, the patriarchal head of another king, David. You have the lineage of both Saul and David here working within the same area as one another. If you don't know how that story was, go back and read your Bible because there was tension there. And here they are working together to rebuild a wall. These notable, This is like the Kennedys and the bushes of the day are actually digging in and building walls. You know, those names that everybody, as soon as you hear it, you know. Okay? This is who they were. And they are taking part in this. It wasn't beneath them. These are families that may not normally have associated with one another are now unified. The sixth group that we see is the disgraced worker. What? The disgraced worker. What are you talking about? Okay. This man is mentioned at another time in Scripture. It says, Malchiah, the son of uh, Harim and Hashab, the son of Pahath Moab, repaired another section. And the Tower of the Ovens, by the way, Tower of the Ovens is what it sounds like. This is where they baked bread near in the city, uh, the bread that would be used and so on and so forth. So uh, uh, anyway, it mentions this man, Malchiah. So so what? Who's he? When you look in Ezra 1031, Ezra 1031, if you want to look at this uh, afterwards. Ezra 1031, this exact individual is mentioned. But it's not in a good manner. You see, he married somebody who was not Jewish, along with a few others who married women that were not Jewish. And they are publicly disgraced. That's why I have guy in stocks there. No, that is not an accident. Publicly disgraced. Uh, they were ones who were brought before and said, you need to end these marriages because this is breaking God's command, God's law. This is embarrassing. This is disgraceful. Everyone would have seen him and known the story about, oh, yeah, you're one of them. And this man had been restored enough that he was able to be a part of building this place. The disgraced was given a place to serve alongside of his kinsmen and his city people. The last group here is another one that if you just read through it, you're like, you don't think much about it. And it's group number seven, women worked. Women worked. Verse 12 says this, next to him, Shalem, the son of Halahesh, a ruler of half the district, another political leader, repaired. He and his, thank you, daughters. He and his daughters. This was not typical work for women in this day and age. That was, you know, managing the house, taking care. This is a patriarchal society. The men are the ones who step up. And yet you have here daughters getting involved in building a wall. This was highly irregular. Some would say they shouldn't be there. It's not their place. And yet they were there. They were willing to work. Uh, Whether it was the father needed the help. Whether it's they just wanted to be a part of it, they were doing it. And they didn't let what culturally wasn't normal stop them from doing it. Willing workers should be allowed to work. I'll tell you this. In the years of ministry that I have had, and I'll say this even especially in youth group, I never had a hard time getting helpers that were girls in my youth group. If I said, hey, we're going to go feed the homeless, I had like 10 signed up before the sentence was out of my mouth. I did have a hard time getting the guys. Sadly, I see that go into adulthood too. Willing workers should be allowed to work. We should be honoring those who serve. I am thankful for the women in our church that I see work. I'm thankful for the men. I'm, you know I'm thankful for you. But I'm thankful for the women that oftentimes just do it because it needs to be done. And that it's not even hard to get them to help. Thank you all who do that wherever you help. These are the people who worked on the wall. Uh, All total, uh, 10 gates are mentioned that were fixed. Four towers, defensive units, were fixed. 38 different individuals were listed and 42 groups of workers were listed. It's kind of small. It sounds big, but when you think about the size of the city surrounding them, this is a smaller group of people, maybe a few hundred, who built all of these things, 10 gates, 4 towers, 30, you know, this is huge work, and none of them qualified. What's uh, mind-blowing about this is if you read through this chapter, if you are so brave enough today, you'll notice that some of these people that we mentioned are mentioned two times. You know what that means? They finished one section, they said, okay, now what? They didn't say, okay, I did my section of wall, I'm done back to their house and watched everybody else wow they really had to fix that wall over there they jumped in and took on two sections of wall that they would build some of them you'll see we'll mention as we saw a second ago served near their house their literal house Uh, they had a vested interest because where they were working was near their house it's almost like an HOA you know they're interested in everybody's houses Uh, If you're with an HOA, you know what I I mean by that. You know, you're always more concerned about the people across the street and how they take care of their lawn and all this, okay? Uh, These people were personally investing because this was near their house. Um, Not just that. Uh, Some people... This is an interesting one. In verse 5, and I didn't want to spend a lot of time on this, but verse 5, it mentioned the Tekoaites, which we looked at, some outsiders. It makes a little end, the end of the sentence says this, that some of the Tekoaites refused to kneel before the Lord. They refused to kneel before the Lord. There were some who said, nah, I'm not going to do this. They wanted no part of it. And commentators will tell you there's, there could have been any number of reasons why, and we can only really speculate. Was it that they were afraid that if they got a part of building these walls that the outside armies might come and take them out? Maybe. Was it that they may have struggled with jealousy that Nehemiah was getting this job done and they were jealous of him? It's possible. We don't know for sure. When we get to the kingdom, if they're there, we'll ask them. But what is interesting is this profound vision that is going forward that all of these people are excited to be a part of. There were people who were like, I don't care. I'm not gonna be a part of it. You know, I've seen church uh, voting in the past, churches that I've served, where you do something that just seems like a no-brainer that you're gonna vote on. We're gonna accept the Bible as God's word. Can we get a vote on that? And inevitably, there's like a handful of people that still vote no. I mean, it's like a spiritual gift of no. And I don't understand that. Uh, but it's troubling. You see this even in Nehemiah where there's people who don't want to be a work of God. I, they're seeing this amazing stuff. They want nothing to do with it. Nothing to do with it. You know, it was masterfully organized. One thing that you got to say about Nehemiah with this, when you read through this chapter, you see this guy had his ducks in a row. What a masterful job at delegation and organization to get all of these people working together. It didn't matter what their gifts and backgrounds were. uh, All of them were equal in working. All of them were unified in working. And that's what brings us to the point this morning. The point is this. God's work is best done God's way and brings God glory. God's work is best done God's way. The way that we get principles out of Scripture leading with humility, being all in. It's best done that way, and it always brings God glory. I mentioned this last week. Nehemiah's vision was not so Nehemiah could get a fountain in the middle of Jerusalem that says the Nehemiah Fountain. It wasn't to get a wall named after him. It was all about the glory of God and the testimony that this work would be for him. God's work done God's way. Always brings God glory. If a church is serving God full-heartedly behind a vision and a mission and they are all in, it will bring God glory. That's the end game. It's not us. It's not how great a church we are. Anything like that. It is always about the glory of God. And so God's work is best done God's way. And that means a couple things. What about us? Uh, The first one is this, that no one sits on the sidelines. No one sits on the sidelines. There's nobody who's out. Uh, You're not qualified or you've done your time or you did your section and now it's time for me to relax. We're a body here, a family, brothers and sisters in Christ, an organism, a living organism. Romans 12, 4 through 5 says this, For as in one body we have many members... And the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. The church is an organism, the body of Christ with different parts that do different functions. We're not all the same, thank goodness, okay? We need one another. But to be healthy, we all have to be functioning. If my liver decides today, eh, I'm tired. I'm not going to work anymore. Is that a problem? Yes. If my kidneys do the exact same thing, is that a problem? Yes. We all have an important role to play in the body of Christ. And it is not optional. It is not optional. Till the Lord takes us home, we need to be putting in and giving and being a part of this living organism known as the body of Christ body of Christ Um, as I look through this you know I think about uh, the leadership factor in this and I mentioned you leaders should be serving beside some of the best bosses I had in my past and whenever I would have a job and I had a lot of them were always the ones who knew that we were all working towards the same goal and were willing to work alongside of me to even help me get my work done when I was behind be that mindset as the church The second thing for us this morning is this commit to learning on the job. Commit to learning on the job. Think about this. These people were learning on the job. It wasn't like something that when you had toddlers, hey, we're going to learn how to build walls today. And you grew up learning how to build walls. Not at all. They were having to figure this out as they went. This is quite the work. And so they had to learn on the job as they got into it. Maybe they had some instruction for some that were used to building walls or knew how to, but they still had to learn it. We, when we serve, need to make a commitment to learning on the job. Ephesians 4, 11 through 12 is a passage I go to often because it's the type of church I want us to be. It says, And he, Christ, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Ultimately, church leadership, our role, if we're doing it right, any leader in this church is equipping everyone else to do ministry, not hogging it all to ourselves. I can visit everyone in the church, but I'm hogging it all for myself. Some of you are capable of doing that work of ministry and my job and the elder's job and the leadership job is to equip you. If we're not equipping anything, if we're not equipping anyone and training someone to take our place, we're done. We've set our expiration date as a church. The role of leadership is to equip you for acts of ministry, for acts of service. Don't miss that. Don't leave it all up to a super pastor or a super elder. Be a part of it. Be a part of it because I can't do it all. I know that. I'll tell you that. Commit to learning on the job. This may mean that you have to step into a ministry because there's a need there. We've had a couple in the bulletin listed. You may have to say, I don't know how I'm going to do it." this. But I'm going to jump into this because there's a need there. Can you train me? Can you teach me how to do this? Youth ministry, kids ministry, greeting. I think you can learn how to greet. Um, uh, All these different ministries that we have. Sometimes you just got to step and say, all right, I'm a student all over again. How can I do this? And how can I get better? Because the need is there. That's what the people did in Nehemiah 3. Number three is this. Serve above the status quo. Serve above the status quo. Serve above what is expected of you. One thing I didn't mention that hit me this past week as I was reading through this list of names and everything about them. This is an agrarian culture. That means they still have to plant food, make food, all the typical, uh, cattle, all of that, they have to take care of it. That means on top of building the wall, they were still working their jobs. They were still going about normal life. And oh yeah, on the side, we're building a wall as well. That is a lot of commitment. That is a lot of commitment. They served above what they could have said. Well, you know, I've got a full-time job here with sheep. This has taken up a lot of my time. You know, I don't have time to help build a wall. They were in. They served, even though they had careers and jobs. We don't know. The goldsmiths were probably still doing goldsmithing. The perfumers were still making scents out there for people to put on themselves. Whatever the case, they were still doing their jobs, and yet they were still helping build a wall. There wasn't an excuse for them. They wanted to be a part of it. Serve above the status quo. 1 Corinthians 15.58 says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast. Be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. There's no real retirement. When it comes, for me, as much as I get this awesome privilege to be a pastor, I reach retirement age or I'm just not effective anymore, then I get this opportunity to find another new ministry. I get to pour my life into people. I get to invest in others. I get to find where God can use me because I don't want to say, my time's up, I'm done. I hit 67, I hit whatever, I'm done. We need to always abound in the work of the Lord. Serve above the status quo. This isn't as much about your time as much as it is about your commitment and engagement with the body of Christ. For all of us, I challenge us with this. Don't underestimate the impact of a few fully committed to a purpose. I started off with the story about 81 people basically having their way with 4 million in New York City. Don't underestimate the impact of a few fully committed people who are given to a purpose. You may say... We can't really do it. We're a small church. I'm just one person, one, so on and so forth. Well, I got some news for you. They have done research into how much, in order to change, we'll say, American culture. In order to change American culture, how many people would we need all being you know, committed to a purpose? How many would we need? And science has actually answered that. What percentage of the American population would it require to literally change our culture for one purpose or another? Any guesses and you can say them out loud. 1%? 2%? Huh? Half a percent? Wow, you guys are being so conservative today. Wow. I figured someone would go higher. They have people that have actually studied this. And their actual number is 3.5%. 3.5% 3.5% of a church, 3%, 3.5% of a town, it's this magic number that every time you see it, when people are fully committed to something, 3.5% of something, they change things. They get things done. That's all it takes in our church is 3.5% for us to really, truly be making an impact in Ephrata. And I hope you want to be in that. I hope you're a part of that. That's how things change. I was reminded in closing of one story that I know my dad raised me on uh, and told many times. Uh, There was a college up in New York called Williams College. Uh, It was in the 1800s. Five college students came together and began to talk about the people of Asia not having missions or hearing the gospel. And these young college students felt very stirred up about this this need for missionaries in Asia. At the same time, it begins to rain, a downpour. These five students go into a haystack. And in this haystack, they hide and they begin to pray that God would use them to be missionaries and to send missionaries to Asia. Five college students. That was it. In a haystack, praying. Praying. The result was missions organizations being bought out of this. Within 50 years, they had sent out 1,250 missionaries, primarily to Asia, because five small students got serious about something, committed about something, and God did something. And that's what it wants, I want, and I pray will be with our church. Yes. A small church can make a big impact. My question is, will you be a part of the mission that God has put before us? Or will you be like a Tekoaite and say, it's not my place. I want no part of it. Let's pray. Father, as we think about these lists of people, they were just common people. Some of them were ruling class, yes, but some of them were just like us. Nothing fancy not maybe the most trained or qualified or anything like that, yet they came together for your glory. They came together that you would be known. They came together to see what you would do through them, and so they committed themselves to the work of God the way that you would want them to. Some of them humbled themselves in a position of leadership to work along the side of commoners to fulfill a purpose. God, I thank you for this chapter that maybe many people skim over, they don't think anything about. But for us, it should be a challenge. And Lord, I ask that you would help this church, Lord, the vision that you have given us. Even this year as we focus on loving where we live, the town and the location that you've given us, Lord, that we would be a profound impact and not just talk a lot about it, but be people of action. And God, that those efforts that are not for our name but are for your name, that you would use them to do great things here for your name. We believe that you are not done seeing lives changed for you. We believe that you still have marriages to heal, have hearts to heal, have addictions to beat. Within the mile, a mile of this church, Lord, it's there. And if we just would embrace the opportunity. And Lord, submit ourselves to you. You would do it. God, remove our excuses. Remove our excuses. And help us to be a church of impact for the the name of Jesus. We ask all of this in your name. Amen. Well, that's it for this week. Thank you for joining us. If you would like prayer, you can send your prayer requests into prayer at gfchurch.net and we will pray for you. If you like this message, don't forget to subscribe on the podcast app, Google or Spotify. Give us a follow on Facebook and Instagram. We look forward to seeing you next week.